Good morning. Please uh, rise for the reading of God's Word. Uh, we will be in Mark 1, 21 through 28. They went into Capernaum, and right away he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and began to teach. They were astonished at his teaching because he was teaching them as one who had authority and not like the scribes. Just then a man with an unclean spirit was there, was in their synagogue. He cried out, what do you have to do with this? Jesus of Nazareth, have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Jesus rebuked him saying, be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit threw him into convulsion, shouted with a loud voice and came out to him. They were all amazed, and so they began to teach each other. What is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. At once the news about him spread throughout, spread throughout the entire vicinity of Galilee. Let us pray. Dear Lord, thank you for allowing us to gather on this beautiful morning. Thank you for everyone in this church and for all you are doing in this community. I'm honored to be a part of such a great church family, and I ask that you continue to grow us deeper in relationship that others may want to know you more. Lord, continue to bless us and show us mercies. As we join our city in a season of prayer, I want to pray for each and every one of those in Nashville to come to relationship with you. Help us all in this church to reach out and be in community with those who don't yet know you. Help this word this morning to change our hearts and to know you better. Amen. You may be seated. Thanks, man. You guys saw that uh, short video clip of a few of the pastors in our family of churches. If you're not familiar with the way this works, we as a group of pastors get together for about a three-day retreat in the summers. Um, we pray over the entire calendar. We put together a preaching plan for the whole next year. About 42, 43, 44 weeks a year. Each church in our family of churches preaches on the same text. Now, over the next few weeks, you will get to see a few video clips of some of our other pastors, and, and you, will, you will begin to see that the sermons themselves vary widely, because the congregations themselves vary widely. The pastors themselves vary widely. Um, but it is an honor to be a part of that group of men. The way that I came to be a part of that group of men is, um, shall we say, untraditional. <laughs> that wasn't funny. Um, my road to becoming a pastor um, is, is an interesting one, to say the least. It's full of twists and turns. It is not linear in any sense of the word. But if I were to kind of narrow in on, on one event in my life that I could consider the genesis of this journey, it happened about 15 years ago. 
I was just a regular dude in a um, uh, secular career. I was leading a couple of Bible studies at my church. And in that season, I was invited to participate in a pilot program, a year-long seminary-level course. It would meet once a week, uh, three hours at a time. If you missed two, you had to drop out. It was led by Dr. Mike Glenn, who is the senior pastor at Brentwood Baptist Church, and Dr. Daryl Gwaltney, uh, who is the dean of biblical studies and preaching at Belmont University and was actually the interim pastor here at Lachlan before I came. I just love, as I look back in my life, to see the seamless web that God weaves for all of us. Um, I, I thought at that season in my life, it was an unbelievable opportunity for me to grow and mature as a leader and as a teacher. Showed up that very first day, and as Dr. Gwaltney and Dr. Glenn uh, kind of hand out the syllabus and go over the year and what they wanted to accomplish and, and the way things would work and the homework and the attendance and all that other stuff, they gave us our very first homework assignment. First week... Our only assignment was choose one of the Gospels, sit down one night, start at chapter 1, verse 1, and read it to the very end without stopping. As a dutiful student, I did that. As, as any wise person would do, I chose Mark because it's the shortest. I carved out some time after Nick went to bed one night. I sat down with my Bible. I started in chapter 1, verse 1. I read the entire gospel of Mark, and it changed me. It changed the way I look at Scripture. It changed the way I studied Scripture. Suddenly, these things started to come alive Chapter and verse numbers began to melt away. I started to see the transitional times in between the miracles. I started to see the way that Jesus poured into these 12 men. Maybe more than anything, I saw that, that these kind of Sunday school vignettes that I had been taught and had been teaching for so long, the miracles and the parables and the sermons and the run-ins with the religious elite of the day, none of them occurred in a vacuum. I'm sure I knew that on kind of a head level, like you recognize that all of this is connected, but that was the first time that I really saw it that I embraced it on a heart level. It was the first time I really understood that Jesus was not Mr. Rogers. That Jesus, um, his teachings weren't mere platitudes, full of love and kindness and forgiveness. Um, that, that, That everything, every miracle he performed, every word that he taught, every step that he took was pointed toward the cross. From beginning to end, it was always going to the cross. And thankfully, to the empty tomb after that. 
It's one reason that I stand before you today so excited to start this new series, so excited that we will be spending three full months walking through the gospel of Mark, three full months exploring the life and the ministry of Jesus so that we can recognize that none of it occurs in a vacuum, so that we can recognize every word he taught, every step he took was pointed toward that cross. Now, the Gospel of Mark is, is unique amongst the Gospels. It's written by, shockingly, a man named Mark. Uh, it's convenient. We have recently met Mark in this congregation. If you remember our fall series as we were kind of walking through the book of Acts using the life of Barnabas as a framework, we met John Mark. John Mark, Mark, the same person. Mark was Barnabas's cousin. Uh, Mark grew up in a very prominent family within the early church in the years following the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Oftentimes the church in Jerusalem would meet at Mark's mother's home. He, he was not one of the original 12 disciples, but he would have been known intimately by the disciples. In fact, his his the prominence of his family and his relationship with Barnabas led him to be invited on the very first ever missionary journey as Barnabas and Paul set off to spread the gospel. Very first stop, Mark bounces out of there because he just can't handle it. He abandons the mission. As Barnabas wants to bring him on the second missionary journey, Paul disagrees. Mark's failure ends up being the catalyst that caused Barnabas and Paul to split In the midst of that very public failure, God continues to work in Mark's life. Uh, Barnabas mentors Mark. Paul and Mark are eventually reconciled, as we see later in Paul's letters. Paul relies on Mark as one of the, the few people at the end that he could rely on. And on top of all of that, Mark becomes a confidant of Peter. As Mark is with Peter in his final days, he writes down Peter's memoirs, which become the earliest gospel written, the gospel of Mark. Because of the way it was written through the eyes of Peter, through eyewitness accounts, Mark is an action-first gospel. Mark uses the word immediately 42 times in these 16 short chapters. It is fast-paced. It is breathless. The style with which Mark writes kind kind of paints a picture of a global spiritual crisis into which God himself has broken. There are more miracles in the gospel of Mark than any other gospel. Despite the fact that it's the shortest gospel... Relatively less focus on Jesus' words, much more focus on his actions. Jesus is the uncontested subject of the Gospel of Mark. From beginning to end, Mark wants our focus to be there. And his, his portrayal of Jesus actually focuses on the power and authority 
of Jesus Christ. And then Jesus' fulfillment as the suffering servant that was prophesied by Isaiah in Isaiah 42 and 49 and 50 and 52. Here in the first chapter, Mark jumps right in. He introduces Jesus. We see John the Baptist leading the way. We see a brief call narrative there starting in in verse 16 where Jesus calls his disciples. And as soon as kind of all of that is established, Mark wants to show us from the very first chapter what a day in the life of Jesus Christ looked like. He jumps right in to the ministry of Jesus Christ and in doing so, desperately begins to establish the power and authority of this man, Jesus. The passage that Matt read for us this morning, starting in verse 21, actually, if if you were to extend that all the way down to verse 34, we do see that day in the life, morning, afternoon, evening. And in that day in the life, Mark gives us three examples of the authority of Jesus Christ. Verse 21, immediately after he calls the disciples, he takes his band of merry men, they go into Capernaum, immediately roll into the synagogue where Jesus starts teaching. Verse 22 is where we find the first example of the authority of Jesus Christ. Read with me. They, the people in the synagogue, were astonished at his teaching. Because he was teaching them as, though, as one who had authority and not like the scribes. I always love that little zinger. They recognized from the very beginning that this man that they didn't know, that just rolled in and started teaching, he had an authority that the scribes did not possess. Now the scribes at the time, these guys were, um, they were lawyers. Their whole job was studying the law transcribing the law, writing commentaries about the law, and teaching people in the synagogues about the law. Now, the law we're talking about, remember, is the Mosaic law. It's the religious law of the day. And the Mosaic law was complex and multi-layered. And these guys were absolute experts. They knew every jot and tittle. They knew it inside and outside, backwards and forwards. And they could teach it from a thousand different angles. And yet, as this man comes in that was not a scribe and begins to teach, the people immediately recognized, this guy has something these experts do not. Now, I've always found it interesting that that Mark is quick to point out that they were astonished by his teaching, but Mark doesn't actually tell us what he was teaching. We don't hear what he said. What Mark wants us to know is Jesus did not establish his authority in front of those people by his grasp of the law, by the way he turned a phrase, by the way he built an argument, his his vibrant illustrations that brought the law alive. That wasn't 
what gave him this authority that astonished the people. His authority came because his words had an unmistakable weight that could only be derived from an obvious intimacy with the Lord God himself. Such that immediately these people recognized the authority this man possessed as opposed to the legal experts they had been listening to their entire life. This past weekend, uh, my wife and several other women in our church had the enviable opportunity to go and hear Rosaria Butterfield speak. If you're not familiar with Rosaria Butterfield, uh, she is an amazing author, my wife's favorite author. I would highly recommend you seeking out her writings. Nick was a fangirl all day as she anticipated getting to go and sit at the feet of one of her idols and learn from her and listen to her. And when she came back that night, she was, she was glowing in a way that I never see her glowing as she leaves Sunday morning service. Um, I'm not saying, I'm just saying. Um, and I asked her how it went. And of course, she was like, she just gushing with, with good things to say about Miss Butterfield and her writings and, and, and um, the things that she heard. But she looked at me and she said, David, you know, at the end of the day, it wasn't even as much what she said as the fact that as you sat there and listened, you knew with every word the depth and profundity of her relationship with her living Savior. You knew she spoke with the authority of Scripture, not just the knowledge of it. Have you ever sat and listened to someone with that type of authority? My notes say I'm supposed to pause here. Um, when you meet someone and they speak with that authority, it is unmistakable. And from the beginning, Mark wants to establish that Jesus Christ had that authority. If you hear somebody today that has that type of authority, can you imagine how exponentially more powerful and apparent the authority of Jesus Christ would have been? So there is no confusion. As morning turns into afternoon, Mark then tells us another story. Jesus in the temple teaching. Those that are listening astonished by the authority with which he was teaching. And next thing you know, a demon, an unclean spirit, recognizes Jesus, calls him out, names him the Holy One of the Lord. I always find it interesting that it's the demon that recognized Jesus and not the religious leaders that were in the synagogue. But that's a different sermon for a different day. A demon recognizes Jesus and Jesus immediately shuts him up and casts him out. Mark wants to be sure that there is no confusion about the source of Jesus' authority. 
Authority not only over the words of the scripture, not only over the law, but authority over demons, unclean spirits themselves. You you see, this is far beyond an earthly authority. This is far beyond a man-given or man-taken authority. This is an eternal kingdom authority. No scribe, no Pharisee, no Roman centurion, not even Caesar himself had the authority to command the spirits and they obey. In that moment people would have recognized that this man that teaches with authority that we cannot deny, the source of that authority is not man, it is eternal. It's not something that was given to him in the moment. Remember, John 1, chapter 1. In the beginning, the word, Jesus, was with God, and the word, Jesus, was God. This man, Jesus, did not just burst onto the scene one day. He has always been. The source of his authority is eternal. And and his authority is incarnate. He himself was 100% divine. 100% man, 100% divine. And in that moment, as he commanded the spirits to get out, they would have understood and recognized that. As we continue in Mark chapter 1, as morning turns into afternoon and afternoon turns into evening, Mark tells us another story. Starting in verse 29, we see a picture of Jesus going with Peter and his brother Andrew. Peter is called Simon here. It's the same man. And they go back to their house, and when they get there, they find Peter's mother-in-law sick. Insert obligatory mother-in-law jokes here. I will show restraint. Jesus arrives, and this is the scene. Simon, Peter, his mother-in-law was lying in a bed with a fever. And they told him, Jesus, about her at once. So he went to her, took her by the hand, and raised her up. The fever left her, and she began to serve them. No drama. No pomp and circumstance. Jesus doesn't call TMZ to come with their cameras. It doesn't get leaked onto the internet. He doesn't call the townspeople, hey guys, you think the way I teach is awesome and you think the way I command demons is awesome, come see this. You see, in this story, Mark doubles down on the authority of Jesus. Not only does he command the teachings and word of the Lord, not only does he command the spirits, but he has authority over sickness and disease as well. But at the same time, Mark gives us a picture of the intimate way that Jesus wields that authority. Personal and private. As the sun sets on this day in the life of Jesus. We have a picture of Jesus sitting at Peter's home. 
The townspeople lined up out the door. Healing people right and left. Casting out one demon after another. And scene. The first day in the life of Jesus' ministry that we get, Mark gives us three beautiful, powerful examples of his divine, eternal authority. From chapter 1 and on through the next many chapters of his gospel, Mark spends an exorbitant amount of time making sure that we understand the authority of Jesus Christ. Why? Well, Mark wrote this gospel specifically with Roman Gentiles in mind. One of the, one of the cool things about Mark's gospel, one of the reasons that uh, Wycliffe translators globally almost invariably start here is because Mark's gospel is written in an incredibly multicultural way. He wrote the gospel to speak into the lives of Roman Gentiles at the time of Nero and his persecution. And make no mistake, guys, Nero's persecution was not, oh my goodness, they're not going to let our kids pray in school. This was very real and very brutal. And the people that would have read Mark's gospel were people that had placed their faith in this man, Jesus, at a time that placing their faith in him could have, might have, often did result in torture and death. That being the circumstances into which Mark was writing his gospel, he wanted to make sure it was imperative that we understand this eternal divine authority. Because without understanding Jesus Christ's authority, it's impossible to truly understand the gravity of the cross. These people that saw death every day, if they don't recognize that Jesus had an eternal and incarnate authority over demons and disease and death itself, might have seen his story as simply another in a long line of inspiring stories about martyrs for the cause. You see, when you grasp the authority, when you grasp the reality that Jesus Christ could have stopped his torture and execution at any moment, he could have called down heaven itself, struck down every one of those guards, leapt triumphantly from the cross in front of a sea of onlookers that no doubt would have raised them up on his shoulders. But he didn't. 
When you grasp that reality that Jesus had that authority, it's what allows you to recognize the gravity of what happened that day on the cross. It's what allows you to recognize the conscious decision that this man made for you and for me. I stand before you today convinced that we as believers have forgotten that authority. Look back with me at Mark chapter 1. Look with me at what happened to those people in the synagogue that saw the authority of Jesus that day. Read with me Mark chapter 1, verses 27 and 28. They were all amazed. And they began to ask each other, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. At once... The news about Jesus spread throughout the entire vicinity of Galilee. They were all amazed. And at once, the news about Jesus spread throughout the entire region. In modern American culture, there is great debate and gnashing of teeth amongst Christians about the decline of the American church. Now, those of you that are here in the South may be thinking, all right, Hannah, don't be an alarmist. I drive around, I see a church on every single corner. Let's just pump the brakes a little bit. It ain't that bad. Well, first of all, we must remember, the church is not the building, the church is the people. It was one of those classic Sunday school lessons, but it's something we so often forget. Yes, there are many church buildings. Empty, dead, converted into apartment buildings. The most recent data the most recent census tells us that there is not one county in the entire country that is more churched today than it was 10 years ago. Not one. Data like that terrifies us. And it puts us into full-on scramble mode. And there's meetings and there's conferences and we've all got to decide what do we need to do to bring people back to the church? What do we need to do to bring people back to Jesus? And we, we think, all right, if, if we could just really kind of, I don't know, pump up the worship and the smoke and lights and, and maybe we'll build coffee shops then now bring them back. Cool, good-looking pastors that wear flannel shirts and skinny jeans. 
especially that one. We can do all of these things, and, and that's going to bring people back. We'll, we'll be relatable, and we'll be relevant. Fantastic worship and coffee shops, and especially pastors in flannel shirts, none of them are bad things. But we have focused so much and gotten really good at creating a powerful emotional moment that moves people. And now we are confronted with a stark reality that that moment, that emotion inevitably fades away and those same people are left just as empty as they were before. I am convinced that our problem as the global body of Christ is that we have forgotten that our Savior is amazing. We are cynical and we are jaded by our lives and many of us have lost the ability to be amazed at all. If we want the world to know this man, Jesus, the real Jesus, what we need are people that are amazed by their Savior. We don't need to create more impressive and more emotional worship experiences. We don't need to fix the pastor's wardrobe or update his pop culture references. When we are amazed, truly amazed by our living Savior, He becomes famous. When we remember the power and eternal, divine, incarnate authority in our living Jesus, that's when His name will be known throughout the world. That's when what he has done in our lives will spread like wildfire in a dry and jaded and cynical world. This week, it is my desperate prayer that you are reintroduced to an amazing Savior. Reading the Gospel of Mark is a good place to start. There are 168 hours in this week, like most weeks. There are 167 hours remaining until we gather in this room again next Sunday. It will take a slow reader two of those hours to read the Gospel of Mark in one sitting. If you do that, if you invest that time, 
you will be brought face to face with the humanity and the divinity of Jesus. You will see and you will feel the astonishment of the multitudes. You will be reminded of his power, of his authority, and of his willingness to pay the ultimate price for you. You will be amazed. Would you pray with me? God, we come to you this morning confessing our cynicism. We bring our numbness to your feet. And beg you to remind us of how amazing your son is. It's in his name and by his authority that we pray. Amen.